The Devil Comes to Ohio in Tiffany McDaniel's breathtaking novel, The Summer That Melted Everything, from the internationally best-selling author of Betty and On the Savage Side. Fielding Bliss has never forgotten the summer of 1984, the year a heatwave scorched, breathed Ohio. The year he became friends with the devil. That's not a good thing. Oh, man, you shouldn't become friends with the devil, baby. (laughs) Donald Ray Pollock called her book the first truly great gothic coming-of-age novel of the 21st century, and the Library Journal said McDaniel's novel, quote, shines with beauty and lyricism. Give this to fans of atmospheric fiction, particularly those who enjoy the grit of Donald Ray Pollock, the foreshadowing of Shirley Jackson, and the mounting suspense of Peter Straub. The Summer That Melted Everything is available to buy on shelves and online. Visit TiffanyMcDaniel.com to learn more. Yeah. Uh, hey, everyone. Uh, my name is Scott Wampler. I'm one of the, the co-hosts of the KingCast. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you straight up, right up front, that I was summoned in here to do ad reads. After being at a bar on vacation, uh, I'm four pitchers in. Eric, do you think I can get through the Fangoria house ad? In um, one take, in one, t- in one, one take, take as many as many times as I have done it. All right. Um, do, you, do you okay? Think, okay. Here's you the think thing. I can handle it. Let's let's say right up front. There is no editing from here here on out. Okay. Whatever whatever right. you do stays in. Okay. Uh, <laughs> let, let's let's see how this works. Let's see how this goes. All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. For serious now. Yes. No fucking around. It's for all the the kitten caboodle. <clears throat> In 1979, the... Great start, great start. It's already fun. All right, listen. I'm sorry, everyone. In 1979, the first issue of Fangoria was was released into the world. It's been over 40 years, and they are better than ever, with each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horrors past, present, and future. I am four pitchers deep. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. I am on vacation. We can't give everything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. So head on over to Fangoria.com to learn more, to subscribe, and while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code KINGCAST to save 25% off your yearly subscription. Best you had I do. You did so good, baby. You did so good. And you know what? I think it's time to get on. myself? I feel like I fucking, I feel like I kind of pulled this off a little bit. You did it. In matter of fact, you shouldn't have admitted you were, uh, you know, four pitchers deep. You shouldn't, well, people never would have known. Well, you know, we're, we're, the show is in vacation mode right now. <laughs> we are. But uh, you know what? Maybe we should get on with the show for the, the, oh, please, the non-vacation Let's people. Do. All right. Please. On with the show. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Bad rub! Bad rub! Sir! see a dead body. Well, sometimes that is better. Hello, and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name is Eric Vespi. And I'm Scott Wampler. And we are your hosts. I think it's safe to say today's guest is one of our favorite people. You know him from his contributions to The Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson. 
uh, probably most famously as the robot skeleton Jeff Peterson, as well as his appearances on Family Guy and the Howard Stern Show and a ton of other things. Uh, and diehard KingCast listeners will also have clocked him on this very show where he came in as, quote unquote, Morgan Freeman for our first anniversary show. And as our very own Chut Buggins, who made a spectacular appearance uh, in our RPG sideshow Shelbyville, now he's here to talk about the end of the world and the stand. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Josh Robert Thompson. What Whoa. an intro. That's an amazing intro that you wrote in five minutes. That's very <laughs> impressive. Oh, rolling out that. the red carpet, baby. That is uh, always for you. And I'm finally on the show. I'm finally a proper guest. (laughs) This uh, is is not up behind a paywall. You know, you had Stephen King on already. So, you know, what's the, you know, here I am. Yeah. I'm going to try. And I would, I would just like it on record. We had the real Stephen King on the show, uh, Obviously, and we didn't get the real Morgan Freeman, but I think we got the better Morgan Freeman. If you know, uh, well, <laughs> you know, yeah. Well, maybe, maybe so. Some would say. Uh, I do like that Morgan Freeman could never uh, get on the show. Uh, he was always cut off, always uh, Matt Damon style. You know, always <laughs> love that bit. And uh, and yeah, man, and and Chet Buggins, man, that was some fun stuff. That was the weirdest thing that I've done thus far because I've never played any. <laughs> Any of those type of games before those sort of, you know, D&D mm-hmm. type. Right. I, I never played that before. The RPG. Kind. So that was I didn't know what I was doing and, and it showed. <laughs> but we had a good time. Oh, man. No, you you killed it. It was that, fun. That's one of the one of the highlights of the season is your whole stretch in that episode. And who can now that character was that Mallory came up with that character? Yes. Who, that's yes. OK. So they're originally with her. she she mentioned him, this imaginary character on her first appearance on the show and. Uh, listeners kind of latched onto it. Now Chet Buggins is just part of KingCast lore. That's and right. so you've given <laughs> voice to, or you've given my, my Matthew McConaughey's voice to. Yeah, man. Well, um, it could be, yeah. It's always happy to, until you have the real Matthew McConaughey on, and then it's, it's over. Yeah, that's a weird thing, because we're we're an Austin podcast. We started as an yeah, Austin podcast. Exactly. You know, I'm still in Austin. Wampler is taking hiatus, but he's coming back. I'll be back soon, baby. And, uh, you know, so we're in a local, local boys, and McConaughey's around. We see him. Like, you live in Austin. You go to enough film stuff. You're going to see McConaughey uh, around. Um, but it's, it's just one of those things where he's just big enough to where he's got a really good circle of people that, like, protect him from any sort of incoming requests. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? You get the I impression he, he lives it. in a bubble for sure. You yeah. Know? And this is one of the ways that. Well, the bubble is mental. There's no bubble. I mean, you see the <laughs> bubble is there. But, like, I can go outside the bubble. I'm outside of it now, but I'm also in the bubble. So you have to figure <laughs> out how to be both in and out of the bubble. But I'll do your show, man. I was in Dark Tower. Anybody remember that? Anybody? <laughs> yeah, I think I told, All right. I told the story here where I met he, – he was promoting, like, some movie. It was, like, some drug runner movie or something he was in. Gold. Uh, gold, that's gold. right. It was at the Alamo. I was Alamo. at that screening. Yeah. Yeah, in, in – uh, uh, the publicist is a friend of mine and she was like, Hey, do you want to meet Matthew McConaughey beforehand at the highball? I said, absolutely. I want to meet Matthew McConaughey at the highball. And I walked up to him and this is months before, uh, the dark tower comes out. Um, and they introduce us. I shake his hand. And the only thing, the only t- thing I have time to say, cause he's being pulled away, like right away is like, Hey man, I'm a huge dark tower fan. Really excited to uh, see what you guys do with the movie. And he just smiles, look at me and goes, the man in black's coming. And then walks away. He didn't say anything else to me. That was the only thing he said to me. Yeah. And that well, was more entertaining than the movie. <laughs> well, yeah, the man I said, I said, the man in black's coming. Uh, 
And that's it. I mean, maybe not this time around. We're going to try again, I think, at some point. But it, he will be coming around. So the mountain yeah. when he comes. Yeah. Uh, that's great, man. Yeah, he's a he's an interesting dude, McConaughey. I'd be excited to see you guys have a chat with him. He's kind of moving into like a motivational speaker he space sure now. Is. He which sure is. is. Which yeah. I, I don't know how much I like that, but... Uh, uh, you know what? Whatever makes him happy, man. If hey, he man. Green lights, people, man. Yeah. Green means go. Red means stop. Red <laughs> means go as well, man. Red and green mean go. So does yellow. Don't stop when you go through the when you go through the intersection. Just keep going, man. You're not going to get hit if you believe that you won't, and that's the key. And that's what <laughs> he does now. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's I believe it. it. It's the strangest thing to me. Like sometimes you'll see photos of him on the UT campus, like. Mm-hmm on the field, like giving the players a pep talk and shit, standing next to the coach. And I'm like, this is the weirdest shit. Like, you know, like, isn't, and doesn't the coach feel kind of like, I don't know, subverted. Like we yeah. had to bring in a, a celebrity <laughs> to give you this pep talk. And- yeah. Cause how does that play out? Like McConaughey comes out of the stands and goes, hold on a second. Let me just, Hey guys, let me just, let me just get in here. This powwow. Cause I think I see what's going on here. And then everyone has to kind of go, Oh, all right. It's the McConaughey. So yeah, go yeah, ahead. Go ahead. I, it's hard uh, to know. Like if you were one of those football players, I can imagine being like, this is cool as fuck, man. This guy comes and hangs out with us. But I can also imagine being like, what the fuck does this guy know? Like, what are we, why are we talking to this actor? Right, but you can't say it. You gotta, right. you gotta. <laughs> I don't, and I don't know which one of those two things I would be. I guess, I don't know. I guess it depends on how he interacts. With Who's your these. quarterback? Who's, okay, you're, okay, Marcus. Okay, look at my <laughs> finger. I want you to look at my finger, my right hand. Look at my finger. You see that? I want you to pay attention to what I'm doing there. The way that you're looking at my finger is the way you need to watch the ball. Oh, and everybody gather around, that, that kind of stuff for an hour. <laughs> right. and yeah. Can... <laughs> and they're like, they're, they're starting, we're getting a penalty for not being on the field. That's... Like, I'm almost done. Don't worry about that, man. Penalties aren't real. The game ended 20 hours ago. No, that's, sure. part, yeah, um... but, but the game's still going in your mind, man. That's the important thing. <laughs> All right, we need to go home, all right? All right, everybody, take care. That was The Stand, and you know, I really yes. enjoyed... <laughs> yeah. uh, Good times. <laughs> well, what is the connection, by the way? Is there a connection? There is. The Dark I mean, Tower, that's the whole... Yeah, I mean, Randall Flagg, yeah. Yeah, Randall Flagg, right. Randall so there Flagg you go. Is, is a There combo. it is, man. And, you know, once again, McConaughey, kind of a, a great, a great uh, walking dude persona, you know? So it's yeah. like... Perfect. I don't know. the The casting wasn't wasn't the problem. I uh, I think just how they approached him in the movie. Uh, but yeah, no, it kind of blows my mind. I'd love to think of uh, McConaughey as as a Randall Flag type in a movie um, or an adaptation of some sort. But Lord knows, the last thing we need is yet another stand adaptation at this point. I'll so. give it another try. Come on, guys. Yeah. yeah. Another ten years from now, <laughs> yeah. maybe somebody will reboot it. I think um, I think that most recent one probably guaranteed we are not seeing another attempt oof. at stand for twenty years. What are you talking about? <laughs> like <laughs> what on earth? It started so I in my opinion, it started strong. I liked the first episode. I did not understand why they were fucking with the chronology of it, but I felt like well, let's see what they let's see what they're gonna do with it. You know, right. I was I was right. trying to be optimistic about it. And then about halfway through it was like this fucking emperor has no clothes. Yes. There's no re- there's they did this for no reason. And it the whole thing just suffered for it. And it's the Mick Harris version, I think, is like light years better oh, yeah. than than the uh than the new one. As achingly early to mid nineties as that movie uh, is, it is way more 
the tone of the book. Uh, but mm-hmm. but I think we're getting a little ahead of ourselves here. Josh, did yeah. you did you uh, give us your Stephen King origin story when you did our? Because you came on and did a bonus episode with right. us. Um, and I don't remember if you gave us your Stephen King origin story, but you know what? Even if you did, I think the main feed deserves to hear it. So well, you I have think, a Stephen yeah, I don't King know if I story. did, but I think, it, you know, I grew up in, in Cleveland. I grew up in a suburb of Cleveland called Parma, Parma, Ohio. And um, there was, there, you know, like most people, you were forbidden to read Stephen King or it was, it was this very taboo thing, especially when I think I was probably summer of 87, 88. I was in junior high. I went to Hillside junior high, which we affectionately called Hellside. <laughs> and, uh, but I was really big in, I was big into horror movies already. You know, we had like, we had late night creature feature shows. I think at one point in Cleveland, we had like four or five, late night monster movie hosts, you know, uh, yeah. Elvira was syndicated, but we had super host Saturday afternoons, channel 43. It was the local weather guy, I think who would just put some, uh, red grease paint on his nose and a very snug, uh, a fitting Superman suit and put some bro cream in his hair <laughs> and say, hello there. We got a great feature for you. And Superhost would play, you know, three stooges and a little rascal short and then play like two Godzilla movies every Saturday. So there was that guy, there was the ghoul, there was son of ghoul. And then uh, my parents in the sixties had Goulardi, who was of course, Ernie Anderson, father of Paul Thomas Anderson. And Ernie went on to be the voice of ABC. So anyway, big Chuck and little John, we had Frank and Drac. So I grew up with, all of those shows. And because of that, I watched a lot of Italian horror movies, zombie movies, Mm -hmm. cannibal movies, like the worst of the worst, which all, of course, now I own all of them. They're all here, special editions here on my (laughs) shelves. But that was, I think that was sort of, for me, the gateway to all of that. And then I found a paperback of Pet Cemetery on the, you know, the wire rack at Kmart, the local Kmart. And yeah, the book section of Kmart was just magical to me. That's where I started learning about making movies. It was a book by John Russo, uh, co-writer of Night of the Living Dead, um, the original, right? He made a book called How to Make Movies by John Russo. I'm going to show you everything, kid. <laughs> and I still have that book. The pages are falling out and I and I poured over that book all summer long and I made my first monster movie, uh, which was inspired by a, a movie called The Gate. I think it was the first, oh, maybe the yeah. first PG. Was that the first PG-13 horror movie? Mm, I don't think so, but it was early on in the, the run. Was, mm-hmm. But I know exactly what you're talking about, because there's that those movies where really that should have been R, but like, yeah. they just didn't. But it just wasn't like gruesome enough or didn't have one bad word enough. And they were still kind of trying to figure out right. like, where that line was between PG-13 and R. So that's a that. really disturbing fucking movie. Yeah, it's a, it's a great film, too. I, I actually like the, the second one, um, uh, The Gate 2. I think it's the same director. Is it mm, t- Tibor, right. Tibor Takix or Takis, I want to say. Mm. But anyway, he made these two great films. But I remember going to see The Gate my mother took me to see it at the Parmatown Mall, uh, <laughs> the General Cinemas at the Parmatown Mall. 
And before the movie started, they had one of their staff members dressed in a tuxedo, Freddy Krueger mask and the Freddy Krueger glove. <laughs> and, I mean, this is this is peak 80s. And he would walk around slowly, uh, you know, between the aisles, just scaring people. And I loved it. It was this real spirit of showmanship uh, in, in a theater like that in a, in a mall. And uh, so I saw that movie. And then the other one was Phantasm. I had rented oh, Phantasm. Yeah. Uh, Don Coscarelli's Phantasm. And so I made a movie that was very similarly themed about a young boy who, you know, unearths demons in his backyard. And uh, so I was sort of just steeped in all that. So Pet Cemetery was just the icing on the cake. Just reading that book felt, I mean, much like my dad's, uh, you know, penthouse magazines that I would uh, sneak from, uh, he, had, he had them hidden between his mattress. You know, <laughs> that's how you, that's how you read Dirty books back in the day, <laughs> folks. Um, that's what it felt like. It felt like something forbidden, and I I was hooked immediately. Yeah, um, there is something. <laughs> I don't know if uh, Gen Z you know, or even later uh, born millennials will understand that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's weird how the <laughs> I don't know. There's something really creepy about like this is the material my dad spanked it to. And uh -huh, that's what right. I had. <laughs> you know, yeah, where never, you don't go right, and get your right. own porn. You know, when you're that's right. when you get to that age, it's it's uh, something I never thought about until you uh, mentioned your your story here. And, and the very first thing that jumped into my mind is like, oh, okay, so you were getting a boner off of the same shit your dad was. <laughs> it's like there's something very uh, not at all disturbing about that. You've got good taste, son. In fact, <laughs> you have the same exact taste as your old man. <laughs> Chip off the old block. <laughs> yeah, I'll say. And uh, and then there was always that that one kid who maybe was held back a few grades. This was a guy I knew in sixth grade going into seventh, going into junior high. Claude, his name was Claude Newton. And Claude wore, um, you know, corduroy pants. He had a mustache. He had like, a, he had the beginnings mm -hmm. of a mustache, but in right. sixth grade, you know, feathered hair. He wore cowboy boots and he may have, you know, Claude, sorry if you're listening. He may have had a Confederate flag belt buckle. Mm -mm. <laughs> but the thing about Claude that was amazing is, you know, I got picked on a lot. I got bullied a lot in school and uh, surprised to no one. And I um, be befriended Claude because he was a little bit older and he spoke in a very monotone voice. He was very emotionless. But the thing that was cool about Claude was he would sort of protect me from the bullies. And when you hung out at Claude's house, his bedroom was just, uh, the walls were just plastered with horror movie posters. Mm. And um, he, he was sort of my introduction to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and the, the Evil Dead movies, Day of the Dead. I remember watching the scene where Joe Pilato is getting torn apart by mm -hmm. the zombies. And he's shouting, you know, choke on him, you know, and, and it's and I thought it was so it was so real and so visceral to me. But the, but the but I wanted to know how they did it. I wanted to know how they made that because it seemed like it was really happening to him in that film. So so Claude Newton's basement, you know, was the the place where there were, you know, stacks of. I don't know, whatever they had swank. His dad had the nastier. His dad had like swank and you know, hustler mm. and all that stuff. But then it was also horror movies. So Stephen King, I think felt like that <clears throat> EC comics, uh, the combination with like creep show, everything felt very forbidden, but like perfectly geared towards somebody that was in junior high. It felt like right, the right. exact perfect moment to fall into that. 
uh, type of reading, you know, because uh, novels before that were everything was stuffy. Everything was assigned to you for right. reading in school. None of it was fun. And uh, Pet Cemetery was. Yeah, that was a wild ride, man. That freaked me out. Did you have long uh, like nightmares after reading Pet Cemetery? Like, did it- I had nightmares. Yeah, about my uh, we had a cat that. That was, in fact, that did die around that time because we had we had oh, um, the, the road that we lived in front of uh, Sprague Road in Parma, Ohio, was very busy, very busy, you know, quasi country road. But those the way that Stephen King would describe that truck, those trucks that would barrel right. down that road was very frightening to me. So the idea that my cat would come back from the dead and that's what Claude Newton used to tease me about we used to my had a you know like a pretty big backyard we would we would camp out in the backyard sometimes and uh we would dig a fire pit and we would you know have a little fight claude was the kind of guy that would take a can of wd-40 you know and put a match in front of it and you know i think one time one of those cans exploded so we were lucky that we made it out alive <laughs> is what i'm saying but at one point i think i buried my my hamster a pet, a hamster named Rascal, and we buried him out there in the backyard. And a few days later, the the grave was dug up and Rascal wasn't there anymore. So Claude, of course, told me that Rascal had dug himself out and had come back to life. And so, and so that's kind of why we made this horror movie. My horror films, by the way, are called Fred, the Domain of Darkness. Fred was the name of a, uh, remember those rubber face puppets? They were like finger puppets. Mm-hmm. Like they were like yeah. funny faces you could get in yeah. like a gumball machine. So I yes. collected all of those, and we decided, like kids do, one day to put a firecracker in the mouth of one of them and see what would happen when it blew up. And then we set it on fire and watched it melt, <laughs> and probably ingested, you know, lots of toxic chemicals in the process. <laughs> but Claude had convinced me that 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 particular puppet named Fred because we burned it was going to haunt me forever. So that's the basis of my not one, but three part trilogy, the, the Fred horror series, um, which right now we're working on the special edition. My girlfriend and I, she's a very talented animator and filmmaker. We, we found the camera, the VHS camera that we shot those films. on. it was a really shitty camera made by GE back in 1988. Mm -hmm. And so I'm doing, insert shots uh, George Lucas style this is like a George Lucas special edition of uh, these <laughs> horror films because I was never really happy with the stuff that we got you know when I was like 14 years old I just you know I wouldn't have the budget for it so <laughs> so now we're but so but it's so much fun because we're going back and using the techniques that were available at that time that's the rule of these reshoots um, we are making sort of special editions of those films. So oh, that's cool. Um, I think Stephen King partly is, is to blame. And I also, I mean, thankfully I say that in a positive way for my wanting to make films, particularly horror films. I think that's kind of what set it off. So uh, the reason I'm saying all this stuff, I'm painting the picture of this era. Cause that it was all just swirling around at the time. It was right. just in the ether, all that stuff. So it seemed like the perfect time for it. Yeah, I do like what you said about like how it's weird. You had all this kind of extreme stuff, the like cannibal Holocaust, cannibal yeah. Ferox, yeah. you know, that those were treated like faces of death, like back then. And like you said, now you can just go to Amazon and order a 4K 
collector's edition of, of these movies. Um, yeah. But that Stephen King was the <laughs> was the thing that you'd find on the Kmart shelf. Like this is he was horror, but he was a populist horror. Exactly. Author, right. Right. And, you know, that's something that like has been really underlined as we've been doing the show is just how. Like, it's not just that, like, the kids of the 80s loved it. They all loved it because their fucking parents had copies and were reading mm-hmm. it. And That's they right. saw they saw those copies on their shelves. And it's like, uh, it's just amazing to me to, to think about now, like, just how with especially as kind of divided as we are. And, you know, because the religious right was a hell of a big thing back then, too, just like it is now. And yet, you know, I can't see today's Karen's reading you know, a fucking pet cemetery. You know what I mean? No, or that's misery a good point. and stuff. But that's like, a good point yeah. because I remember the theater at the corner of my street. Well, before I moved to the suburbs, which is where Parma is, I lived off 117th Street and Florian in this in the other the other side of town is where I grew up until I was about 12 years old. And at the corner, right near my street where I grew up, was an old classic movie theater called the Variety Theater, which has since been. Uh, restored. It, it lay dormant for many, many, many years. But I remember in 1984, uh, parents and church groups picketing the release of a movie called Silent Night, Deadly Night, which uh-huh. was playing yeah, yeah. at the Variety Theater. And I remember not quite understanding what was going on, but wanting very badly to see that film because <laughs> yeah. of that. <laughs> yeah. And now, like you said, I own... Every version of Silent Night, Deadly Night, of course, it spawned a whole series of films. Uh, one with uh, Mickey Rooney as the toy yep. maker. Come on, everybody! Yep. And uh, so, so it's kind of a wonderful thing. It, it, it that forbidden, the, the forbidden nature of these things was was really half the that was half the pleasure of it all. You know, how do I find? And it was a lot harder, by the way, kids, to find those things back then. So you really had to work to find a copy of. Silent Night, Deadly Night. Um, the local video store, Network Home Video, was a mom and pop video store. And the the husband, Dave, he had these sort of tinted sunglasses, uh, tan colored sunglasses. He wore a couple medallions and he had a V-neck sweater. Uh, he would let his tufts of hair, his gray hair spill out the uh, <laughs> the V. And he was forever smoking a cigarette. There was never a time that he didn't have a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. And he was the first guy to let me rent uh, R-rated movies. I remember I went to the shelf to get, I think it was uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Silent Night, Deadly Night, and uh, Amityville 3D. While not rated R, I wanted to see it. And it turns out it wasn't in 3D. What a disappointment on VHS, (laughs) how dare you. And so what I did is I brought the cover boxes up to the shelf, uh, up to the the front desk. And uh, he said, I can't let you rent those. And I sort of lowered my head sullenly and began the long walk back to the shelf. And he said, you have to bring the tag up instead. There were, there were, they had these tags that were hanging underneath the box. Mm, right. And so it was this beautiful moment of, you got to bring me the tag instead, kid. And I'd made it. <laughs> I'd made it. I've now, I could now rent forbidden films and that warped my mind forever. But yeah, man, Pet Cemetery. the idea that your pet could come back to life and that it would be pissed off at you uh, was something I never thought of until then. So thanks a lot, Stephen King. <laughs> so Josh, can you kind of tell us what the plot is of The Stand? And obviously you don't need to go into any All of the quadrillion 
characters or, right. or, or you know, multiple subplots and whatnot. Uh, but just as a refresher for somebody listening that maybe needs to get caught up. Well, I certainly can. Uh, a patient escapes from a biological testing facility <laughs> unknowingly carrying a deadly weapon, a mutated strain of superflu that will wipe out 99% of the world's population within a few weeks. Those who remain are scared, bewildered, and in need of a leader. Two emerge. Mother Abigail, the benevolent 108-year-old woman who urges them to build a peaceful community in Boulder, Colorado. And Randall Flagg, the nefarious dark man, a.k.a. Matthew McConaughey, who delights in chaos and violence. As the dark man and the peaceful woman gather power, the survivors will have to choose between them and ultimately decide the fate of all humanity. That's pretty much it, I think. <laughs> and gotta, that you, lent the whole thing a War of the Worlds type. Yeah, yeah, that, right? Yeah. <laughs> you need to throw in a get busy coffin or get busy dying. Right? Yeah, get busy coffin. Well, if you're coffin, you're, you're dying. dying. Yeah. So you're dead. Uh, <laughs> sound familiar? Uh, because it's happening right now. By the way, I'd like to comment on the the version that I have, the complete yes. and uncut edition, which uh, I first read in 1990 and probably understood uh, next to none of it. Uh, my young brain probably could not comprehend, you know, a lot of the stuff in there. As I'm rereading it, uh, unbelievable. Um, but the cover, the new cover artwork uh, leaves a lot to be desired mm. from uh, Anchor anchor books i don't know how this publishing stuff works but i guess anchor books has it now but it's uh it's a very very bad cover i want to say that (laughs) what's bad about it well it's just i think it it's a guy it's i guess i'm assuming it's randall flag it sort of looks like almost like a stock footage of evil guy with what was uh, the name of the company again i want to oh it's uh anchor anchor books all right. I'm it's a paperback that. edition, and it's a Randall Flagg-esque person holding a bullet between their teeth. The oh, bullet my goodness. Is, yeah, the bullet's very poorly. What the fuck? Yeah, come on, guys. <laughs> it looks it, like he's missing a tooth. Yeah, it, yeah. that's the first feeling you get. You go, oh, he's, oh, wait. Oh, is that a cigar? No, it's a bullet. And it's compton in, uh, in a very bad way. Very clumsily. I'm sorry. Yeah, yes. it, look, it also looks like he's smoking a, smoking it. You know, he's it's smoking like, the bullet. You see, you see. I don't. It, it also looks like I like where t- his head is at, but it yeah. does not make for a good book cover. Question for you: d- yeah. Does does do you think Stephen King um, approves these book covers, or does he not concern <laughs> himself with such things? I don't think he has any right. You know input on those yeah um and i think the publishing industry itself is in sort of an era where the book covers aren't really uh setting anyone's world on fire these yeah days. you know yeah, something we it, talk about on the show right. a lot is that so fucking many guests that we've had and and vespi and i like were initially pulled into these books because of their cover art absolutely or just like we were pulled into horror movies on their vhs cover boxes it's um the the kind amount of, of 80s uh, i'm a, a collector of 80s <laughs> horror paperbacks of which mm. there are mm. thousands um grady hendrix of course wrote a fantastic book called paperbacks from hell mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. catalogs a number of those i have 
pretty much all of those, but maybe five. And the it's the cover artwork that is so stunningly done. It's so right. beautiful. And that was one of the things about the 1990 version, the uncut uh, special edition, uh, which I like because, you know, it's got new stuff. Throw out some old stuff, you know. It's got a it's got a dance number in there. As a matter of fact, there's a whole new dance scene or a musical number. Exquisite. That they put in the stand, which I like. You know, I like putting dance numbers in there and musical numbers. But what I loved about that version in 1990 was the the artwork. I, I had never read a book like that that also had uh artwork the right. by Bernie Wrightson, the famous yeah, yeah. horror art, you know, comic artist. Um, brilliant, brilliant artwork. That artwork was so terrifying to me as a kid. Oh, those images, yeah. you know, Mother Abigail, uh, looking extremely badass. I think she's surrounded by are rats. They, are they wolves or are there yeah. rats? Well, it, well, I think the There's image I'm thinking of is yeah, she's surrounded by rats in the cornfield, and she has that's her, right has like the torch held yes. up high, and yeah. Yes. And then there's the guy in the bath. Then there's the bloated guy in the bathroom stall was the one I could never get out of my head. Yeah. Never. That one's rough. That was one thing the new uh, uh, adaptation had going for it, I will say, Mm. is the dead bodies looked exactly like they did in that artwork. Yeah. And they could kind of what what is that on like a Paramount Plus or something like a not a network? Yeah, I don't. Yeah, that, I don't even know. <laughs> well, so, but they, in, in other words, they could get away with more because there was the TV version oh, that Mick sure. Garris directed, you know, in the '90s, which was a huge deal. But yeah, yeah it was odd that it was ABC. They couldn't really, you know, because what we were taught, you know, the book is uh, <laughs> the book is uh, it's pretty nasty, man. It gets yeah, it gets pretty gruesome. It does, and but that artwork, the cover, you know, it almost reminded me of. Uh, the the troll from uh, Cat's Eye. Yeah, I always thought of it like that. The, yeah, it's the, like the the troll got in a bl- uh, Brundle pod with uh with Star Wars. And that's Luke right, Skywalker exactly. And, and and that cover came out. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was, they sort of look like they have laser swords, and you know, I mean, I, <laughs> yeah. I tried unsuccessfully to sue them, and they said, yeah. "Oh, stop it," you know. And I said, "Well, you know, kind of similar." Um, but what, now the stand came out in the seven. So the original version was yes. what seventy what? Mm, good question. Seventy eight, seventy nine. Now has anyone has anyone read that version, or mm-hmm. have we only? Yeah, that's oh, the one had. I read the first time. Oh, yeah. you did. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I I think I started with that. I read that one when I was a kid as well as I could. You know. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Exactly. Like middle school years, probably. Then I think it was like when once I was into my, I don't think I was it was till I was in like my mid twenties or something that I read the unabridged one. Yeah, and when you read it in your mid twenties, then it really you were really able to put it all together. It made a lot more sense to you, or resonated. I would <laughs> yeah, imagine certainly. Um, there more life experience certainly informed right. my understanding of right. Uh, the stand. When I was in like seventh grade, I probably wasn't picking up on everything it was putting down. But um, yeah, certainly. I, I, did your did your favorite did your character? Because like I had a favorite character when I was a kid, uh, versus you know when I read it the second time around, or like who I identified with. I guess. No, I think I think it stayed the same, and it's Larry Underwood. Oh, Larry Underwood. Yeah, just exactly. love it, Larry Underwood. You know, um, I don't I don't think that part changed. Oh, that's interesting. Stu, Stu always kind of struck me as a little bit boring. 
Yeah. You know, he's, he's a little too goody two shoes. Yeah. A little bit, little boy scoutish for my tastes. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but Larry's, you know, he's been dealing with a drug problem. He's a rock star. He's fucking, I love the idea of a rock star surviving this, right. you know, world ending event. And now like, right. All yeah. his, all his fame, all the money, all that shit means absolutely nothing, <laughs> you know? Well, and, what are you going to do? You know, rock to survive. You know, it's just a, <laughs> right. it's just an interesting dynamic at play there. Yeah. I think uh, for me, it was Nick Andros. Like, I don't know maybe just cause he was like the pure soul. Like he just seemed, you know, he was the quiet, nice guy. I don't know. There was something about Nick. And uh, I think a lot of it might also be that I think I read the book around the same time that I watched uh, Mick Garris's show. And I just thought, that um fuck what's his name rob Lowe. Uh, rob Lowe. yeah you know, of course yeah well just radiated just like <laughs> kindness uh yeah. with, you know which is interesting you know because rob Lowe ha- doesn't have the cleanest uh track record in history especially around that no, time and but, certainly uh, not then he was only yeah. like right at that time yeah what? like four or five down years down the road from that i yeah. guess like yeah, but, pretty pretty amazing but you know as a kid you don't know any of that stuff you're just watching what's on the tv and yeah and there's like oh, that that dude, and I don't think I even recognized him from any because he he I guess he was in that Brat Pack era, but he wasn't in the the shit I watched because I watched all the funnily enough the Molly Ringwald uh, yeah the John yes. you know, John Hughes yes. stuff I didn't really watch the the more like soap opera adulty Saint Almost Fire kind of shit so it was like uh, yeah so th- that was pretty much what I knew him from and I I'm trying to remember I have a I have a very vivid sense memory of reading my mom's like original hardback copy that the dust jacket was so brittle and had it was so well read that like it had like yellowed tape holding yeah. it all together oh yeah you know? yeah uh, uh and That's i great. i remember you know delicately reading that copy and and um and i think i when i interviewed king the first time when i interviewed him uh for ain't it cool back in the the odds you know i told him that one of the things that i love about his books, whether it's The Dark Tower or The Stand, one of these epic long books, The Talisman, um, is that you always get to that point about the middle of it where you're turning pages and you're reading a physical copy. But because the books are so thick, you're turning pages. It doesn't feel like you're making any progress. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so you yeah. get in that that great zone where you're reading and it just goes and the worlds are so vivid that you're like, I'm just living in this world now. This is my own never ending story. Right. You know, I'm going to be able to keep in touch with these characters who I'm falling in love with. Um, but I, I have that memory of, of reading that book that way. And um, uh, but I also remember picturing the miniseries character. So I must have read it after the miniseries came out. Yeah, I think that was I, I think I read it. A li- I read it before the miniseries came out, but I, I think I got halfway through it and then tapped out. And then maybe I finished it by watching the miniseries several years later. <laughs> so I had a very <laughs> skewed right. version and I probably identified with, uh, you know, Harold, uh, <laughs> Harold Lauder, Harold Lauder, probably but just because of the I was writing a lot of stories at that time. I, right. I, I tried to like in seventh grade, I was going to write a fantasy novel, you know, uh, uh, called <laughs> it was called Dynasty of the Crystal Trolls. And uh, yeah, so and I'm not re- nerdy. Not at all. Like, what are you saying? Not nerdy. This like, was a very serious business, and I wrote about four pages, which you know, at that, my God, this was like an epic. And uh, in in home ec class at at Hellside Junior High, the kid that sat across from me in home ec, he said that his mom was a 
you know, maybe an English studies professor or a writing. And she did something along those lines. And he said, uh, this is pretty good. You know, this kid in seventh grade assessing my work like he's a, a literary <laughs> agent. And he's like, um, you know, well, I have my mom uh, take a look at this if you want. And I was like, yeah, sure, sure. With my, you know, my Izod, uh, you know, polo shirt on and my uh, Velcro, blue Velcro tennis shoes with black dress pants. That's what I was sporting back in the day. Scorching. And so she looked at it and said it was pretty good. A bit wordy, but pretty good. And I always remember uh, this passage in The Stand where he's talking about Harold's uh, writing style. Stephen King says... Um, Harold edited the Ogunquit High School Literary Magazine and wrote strange stories that were told in the present tense or with the point of view in the second person or both. And you come down the delirious <laughs> corridor and shoulder your way through the splintered door and look at the racetrack stars. That was Harold's style. I learned more about writing from that single paragraph in the stand than anywhere else. I kind of went, oh, shit, that's how I write. I'm going to go ahead and correct that. <laughs> um, but, yeah, later on, it was Larry Underwood. And, I, and I, I still get very, you know, even though I was just a robot skeleton on a late night talk show <laughs> and I didn't, you know, have a Coke problem, um, <laughs> I still, you know, for a couple of years, you know, you, you, you know I, I became a little full of myself and I always felt like a, a sack of shit when I would go home and, you know, visit my mom. And so rereading, I don't feel that way now, but years ago when it was going on, I felt you know, that way and um, sort of selfishly drawn into show business and the pursuit of that bullshit, you know, at the, at the expense of everything else and your family. And so reading those passages where he goes to visit his mom, or, or I found them shockingly very moving. They affected me quite a bit this time around. And I, you know, that stuff's really, really well written. It's really, really beautiful. Yeah. Is yeah. there a character you're not a fan of? Um, <laughs> a least he, lo he loves the kid. That's his. Favorite. I was gonna say the kid is my favorite kid. man. <laughs> Matter of fact, uh, I, see, I see a lot of the kid in you. How actually. dare you? How dare you? Who was the guy that? Who was the actor from Coach that did the uh, M O O N? Who was mm. that guy? Remember I that guy? Fucking, what was that guy? Big, name? tall, affable, I'd, gentle giant. Do I even have the IMDb pulled up? It is. Yeah. M O N. We used to do that all uh, summer. That's all we did. Did that all name? summer long. Bill, oh, Bill Fegerbucky. Sure. That guy. Yeah, he's uh, he's uh, on a, he's like now famous for SpongeBob. He does. Was it Patrick the the pink thing? Oh yeah. Okay. What? I didn't wow. know that. Yeah, yeah. No oh, shit. Good for him. SpongeBob completely missed me. Like that's that's Patrick new generation Stone, yeah. shit. I've yep. never seen it. Yeah, same. I, I, I was a Ren and Stimpy guy, but not a not yeah. a SpongeBob. So I didn't know that. I think that character. But maybe see, I, I'm intertwining the the TV series from the '90s with the book. So right. I just just him with those those uh, overalls bumming around, going M O O N. That's Moon. Mm -hmm. I'd be like, okay, I got to get out of this. Yeah. I got to turn Laws, this off. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, not uh, I don't know. I mean, it's a challenging, you know, thing to adapt that, you know, and that's yeah. one thing that like uh, we talked about that the new miniseries got right. You know, it got it got a few things right. It got the effects right. It got the what Captain Trips will do to you. It got that right. And, and I think that the guy that they cast 
um, in the new one, and I don't have that IMDb pulled up, but uh, well, the guy they cast there, you know, I thought he did like a pretty great job because that's a character that is, it is like right down the middle of about 18 different problematic you know, sure, sure. things. Mm-hmm. And like, how the fuck do you pull that off and keep the innocence without making it, you know, something that is making fun of disability or doing the disability as a superhero, you know, ability kind of thing. You know, there's a a billion ways to get that wrong. And I think that that was one thing that uh, they actually threaded the needle with pretty well on the new one. Um, Yeah. And and it was to the point where I, I I remember I DM'd you Scott where, while I was watching going, Holy shit, the guy playing Tom Cullen is actually really fucking good in this thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was the nineties and you know, listen, uh, Mick Garris is great. I, I, I love him. I think he's a great director. He's a he's a fascinating guy. You know, but it was of that era. You know, and also the book itself. You the further along that you get in the book, you you sort of become drawn into the minds of all these characters. And King has such a wonderful way of writing inside the minds and thoughts of these people right. that you you know it would be impossible to put that on the screen. Um, but it works very well. It, it's a it's a beautifully written book man i i really didn't appreciate it as much until until now in later years you know reading it now at my age at 48 it's uh it's a exceptionally well-written book it really yeah. and it's massive i mean because i on the, on the flip side i also read terry goodkind rest in peace <laughs> and uh <laughs> i learned how not to write <laughs> from terry goodkind but you know terry wrote massive 500, 600, sometimes 800 page fantasy novels, the Sword of Truth series. And the only reason that I kept reading those books is because I really liked the main, the two main characters. But that's, that's where I learned how not to write. And then I think from Stephen King, you know, even though he, he writes a lot by his own admission, you know, what he's been accused, of course, of overwriting. But I think this is a case of enjoying a very long, pleasant story that overstays its welcome in the best possible way. You just could read it forever. It's just one of those things, you know? Well, it's It's, an epic written to be an epic. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it it justifies its, you know, the the time that it takes to to get through it. Whereas with Terry, by page 100, I'm like, my God, this could be a pamphlet. (laughs) What am I doing here? But I still try to read nonetheless. Some people can bounce off of that, too, because even in some of his best written stuff, you'll get the complaint of, well, do I need three pages on what, you know, the doorman had for breakfast and right and all this stuff. And it's it's easy to be dismissive that way. But like, to me, that's kind of the reason why you read Stephen. That's King, exactly is that, right. Is mm-hmm. that it's not that, oh, it's boring that I know what he <laughs> ate. It's like, but you're it's like you're kind of missing the whole point is like now this is a person. It's not just a a thing that you're, you know, walking by to be a, an instrument for the plot for two pages before they move on. You know, the character like- of Franny Goldsmith sitting in the parlor, telling her mother that she's pregnant is one of the greatest passages in that book to me mm. thus far. I mean, it's yeah. just so well written and so painful and so true. Was right. that in the original edition? Well, that's a good no question. Memory. I feel like yeah. that was one of the things that was expanded upon a lot of the Franny that, Goldsmith stuff with her parents. Yeah, I mean that would make sense. I mean the when I read it because uh, I I read it that initial copy that my my mom's original published copy and then yeah. I 
I bought, I remember I bought from half price books, a copy of the extended edition. That was, it's the one that has like the same, uh, cover with the good and evil fighting each other, but it has like the big, like black and red text or whatever. It's like the extended yes. edition. Um, and I read that and I remember the only thing that I really remember, cause I didn't even clock the kid stuff as being new when I read it the second time, but they kept talking and going on and on about the new ending. Right. It's like, there's a different ending to this. And so like, that's the only thing that I really, really clock um, as being a new edition, even though I know that he added something like 400 something pages right. to it, but it's, it's that coda where, you know, you find out the, uh, the walking dude maybe didn't uh, blow up in Vegas after all. So, so, uh, well, it does have yeah. those, you know, said it has those characters on the cover, very <laughs> yeah. Luke Skywalker, very Darth Vader <laughs> with the laser swords, uh, the, you know, the, the troll from cat's eye or whatever, you know, it's, it's all there. Um, you know, and it's, I mean, is it any good? Sure. Is it Star Wars? No. I mean, it's it's close, but you know, I mean, I used to try to sing the Larry the Larry Underwood songs. You know, when I was young, I would read. I, I thought that that was a real song. Baby, can you yeah, dig your dig man? I, I, you know, I think everybody because I can't for the life of me hear it as a as an actual song. Like I did the exact same thing reading it going, okay, what's the beat here? What's, yeah, right, right. Like, it, because it doesn't feel like the words fall into place like correctly for, for like, you know, a, a rhythm, you know, for a song. And, right. uh, and every time I've heard somebody try to do it um, and I have this memory of, and all my research of doing this is looking up Stephen King uh, interviews and shit where he quotes that and he like and I'm like I know he didn't sing it but he said it in a certain way and it still didn't feel like a song or even a poem or anything you oh, know that would be like, amazing if he sang it I remember I remember I from the library the Cleveland Public Library I got a I think it was J.R.R. Tolkien Tolkien was was uh talk it was a cassette tape of him talking about the books right and he would he would sing uh, like different songs that the dwarves would sing. So I always wondered, God, there's got to be, maybe Stephen King is singing it Tolkien style on a cassette tape somewhere. <laughs> there may, it might exist. But... That would be great. It's like little me sitting there, yeah. you know, on the couch trying to read the book and singing the song aloud. I wish I'd have recorded it because God only knows what that sounded like. Weirdly enough, yeah, this, yeah. this same thing is, the same sort of thing has happened to me with another Stephen King thing. Mm. Uh, when I was a kid and I'm pretty sure it was skeleton crew <clears throat> and you know, the page on the, you know, at the beginning, whether he usually puts like a, a credit or a song quote or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And it's from, uh, it's boogeyman by Casey and the sunshine boys Yeah, or the sunshine man. It's like, uh, you know, I'm your boogeyman. That's what I am. I'm here to do whatever I can. And so yeah. when I was a kid, I was, I had never heard that song <laughs> and I just read it. And then I got to the, you know, the, the, it's it's attributed to Casey and the Sunshine Band. And I was like, oh, that must be a country band. That sounds like <laughs> a country band. And so I remember thinking for some years that this song must be a country song. Like right. I made that connection <laughs> in my head. Yeah, boogeyman. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah and exactly. it was like, yeah, this, so that's just a country song. I've never heard it. And then one day I was, I, the, the original came on and I was like, 
oh, hold on a fucking minute. I had, <laughs> it's a fucking disco song. Exactly. Been, right, I, right. In my head, it had been, uh, you know, country for all those years. Great moment. <laughs> That's funny, man. That's true, though. Yeah, because a, a lot of those songs and things that he quotes, I didn't know any of those songs. So I'm like, is this a poem? This is right. some kind of beautifully written poem uh-huh. uh, with very strange words. I don't understand what it means. And I'll just, I'll skip that part. I don't know what this has to do with what I'm about to read. I don't need to worry about that. <laughs> I, I had a very bad, like, I don't know, processing ability for song. Like I could, I could like recite song lyrics, but like, I never really thought about them, you know, or at all. Right. So like I could sing you like entire Beatles albums, but like, it wasn't until much later that I actually was like, I wonder what those words actually mean. You know, yeah. you get kind of get caught up in the, the melody, but that, that uh, boogeyman uh, song is kind of a perfect example of that because you know i grew up with listening to 70s funk and stuff and you know i listen to all that kind of music and uh um and i never once in a million years would have thought those lyrics were creepy until like you said you read them on the page you're like that's really that sounds like a threat you know yeah Yeah. well i I didn't know anything about i was i was listening to you know classical music and uh vangelis so (laughs) my music had no lyrics i was way on the other end Hello, everyone. Uh, Scott Wampler here. I am back with another ad read. Uh, If you heard my ad read up top, you know that daddy is on vacation right now and uh, we are we are scrambling to get through this. But I do want to tell you about our good friends over at Lumi Labs. You'll be very familiar with them as one of our sponsors, and they are the folks that are championing A little thing called microdosing. That's right. We're talking about taking a THC gummy throughout the day that will help keep you mellow, but not so impaired that you can't, say, host a podcast. These Lumi gummies have been a godsend for both Vespi and I. He's got trouble sleeping, and Lumi Labs gummies have been a big help towards getting him to sleep at a reasonable hour. Uh, This does not necessarily apply while he's down in New Zealand and and at an 18 hour difference from where I am at now uh, that has created all sorts of havoc on the website, but I, 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 the website, the, the show Um, anyway, on my end, I just enjoy the pleasant sensation of being a wee bit baked at any hour of the day. So they're perfect for me too. Mostly though, Lumi labs gummies are aimed at helping you to relax and they work. The best part is Lumi's THC gummies are available nationwide and aren't affected by your state's marijuana laws because they are a synthetic THC strain. That's right, Texas and other states that don't have legal weed. Uh, you can get them delivered straight to your door, and they are legitimately excellent. And this isn't this isn't four pitchers deep, Scott, talking to you. This is, you know, like regular uh wampler telling this is you your friend are, scott wampler yeah 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 this is your the your boy wampler <laughs> um they are they are great to learn more about microdosing thc go to microdose.com and if you like what you see you can use the code kingcast to save 30 percent off your order and get free shipping again that's microdose.com code kingcast Great job, Scott. And I think we should do more of these while you're on vacation. The, your yeah, vacation no. mode, Scott, is uh, is killing it with these ad reads, baby. There was plenty of vacation mode, Scott, on the Bill Hader episode. <laughs> um, let's 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 wrap it up and get back to the show. Yeah, let's get back to Mr. Josh Robert Thompson. Uh, 
I think earlier we, we, someone mentioned, you know, the parents would have a copy. You'd have, they'd have copies of Stephen King books lying around the house. Always, yeah. Uh, and and also, I think Dianetics. I remember there yeah. was a paperback of Dianetics. They got you yep. could see that uh, there was an earmark on like page three, and it never went past that. Nope. And that yep. book just ended up, <laughs> that was because there was a huge push in the early eighties. They had these commercials with the volcano and Yep, how you doing? Get your book. I can't remember the actor's name, but anyway, uh, but Tommy Knockers was uh. the one which to me had the worst cover. I didn't know what the hell it was. It was like a green line. I think it was like mm-hmm. a door with some green light coming out from underneath yep. it. And I remember trying to read that book as a kid. And all I remember was the main character, uh, Bobby, I think was her name. Uh-huh. She just had a bad migraine for, you know, yeah. 300 pages. All, all I knew is <laughs> people just had really bad headaches. I saw, so I remember is that. And then Jimmy Smith's later on. That's all I remember yes, is yes. Jimmy Smith's and a migraine. Yep. Quite is that right? Jimmy. Is that yeah. the book? That, that, you, that's about it, actually. That's <laughs> it, it's a like eight hundred page book. It that, is that written reads on like a, a two thousand blistering page book. amount of cocaine. By the way. <laughs> oh, yeah. that's right. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. One of them. You can, but, uh, yeah, one of them. You can, and you can, you pick up a, com- a copy of Tommy Knockers, just open it to a random page and start reading. You be like, oh yeah, someone, someone on cocaine wrote this. Like it's, it's got that sort of nervous energy and sort of uh twitchiness to the prose right. in some some undefinable or unquantifiable way it's uh yeah not, I, not a i always fan felt of now when was that book written do you remember when tommy knockers is that i want to say that came out in like 87 right so i feel like he was inspired somewhat from et where you know elliot helps et cobble together a communication device out of uh you know the right. texas instruments <laughs> and, a, and you know a blender and so Stephen King was just like, I don't know, I got a telephone and uh, a pickaxe and uh, <laughs> some uh, olive oil. And uh, what if I, yeah, man, it's like 12 paragraphs of that, which is fantastic. <laughs> you know, I was thinking of doing Coke. I've never done it. I'm thinking of doing it and then just reading the Tommy Knockers. I could get it done quicker. I could probably read it very fast. No, that's true. Um, you know, very difficult uh, to read on cocaine. I'll it would it be. Oh, you. OK, so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. Don't try that. Reading or writing. You know, oh, good. I've, yeah, no, I've I have learned, tried yeah. to write yeah. before while under the influence of any kind of upper. And right. uh, it is disastrous because you'll get half of a sentence out and start questioning your word choice. Right. You know, and then you'll fuck around with that first half of the sentence to the degree and over a period of time in which you forget what the rest of the fucking sentence was going to be. It's like <laughs> pulling teeth. And then even <laughs> if you do manage to cobble together some paragraphs, it's like. Just constant revisions. It's it's impossible. Yeah, Waste, that's like, I don't know yeah. how like Hollywood screenwriters or, <laughs> who are you know the the trope is that a lot of them are coked out of their minds, right? You know? um, I don't know how they fucking do it. But. Well, you know, ChatGPT doesn't do drugs, so maybe <laughs> you know that's something that we're going to look at. You know, listen, we'll we'll go back to the table and negotiate, but let's just see where we are in like a year. We'll see where we are with that. You know, <laughs> it could work out. You know what I mean? I did want to mention the the. I don't know if we talked about the. I was obsessed with uh, EC Comics and Creepshow, and so Creepshow and Stephen King and George Romero sort of opened the door for me to this whole underground world of horror themed comics right uh, mm-hmm. stuff that i you know i only knew like marmaduke you know it was like uh ah, he's on the couch again it's, car- it's still around by the way marmaduke and, and <laughs> yeah. everybody's, uh, hey god damn it he 
he dug up the bone, son of a bitch. Let's milk that for 40 years. So but yeah, I didn't know. Business, I didn't, it's just as much a laugh riot now. It's this, it yeah, and then right in the final panel was uh, doggone funnies. And it was always like, you know, Nancy Smith of Wisconsin's little dog looks like her dead husband. Ah, I'll see you next week. You know? And uh, but but I remember that opening up this whole world to wow stuff that again, like Stephen King, this whole forbidden world that had preceded Stephen King, the stuff that he was inspired by to a degree, you know, the idea of these comics that had been banned by the, the, the comic book code, right. you know? And um, so that artwork by Bernie Wrightson that accompanied the 19, I think it was in the 1990 version. Yeah. Uh, it was just unbelievable to me. Just, just painted out these characters in a way that I had never seen before and i'd not really seen that in in novels like that where there was that kind mm -hmm. of artwork that yeah. accompanied it um legendary guy bernie wrightson oh very much so yeah and he's the perfect dude for somebody like or something like the stand and, and it's worth noting that if you've never seen this artwork it's done in a a black and white like ink style yeah uh and it, it it's just extremely fitting for for that world uh, wrightson you know uh, that's not the only King thing. He also did cycle of the werewolf. Uh, right. Those were like full color uh, ones. And those also had a big impact. We can't talk about silver bullet and or cycle of the werewolf uh, at all on the show right. without, you know, talking about how much the, uh, that art and that book kind of fucked everybody up and uh, very gruesome and, uh, and lovely. And he also of course did one of the uh, dark tower books. I think he did five. He did Wolves of the Kala was Bernie Wrightson. Yeah, I believe that's correct. Yeah. So is that but, why now did, did how did that come about? I mean, with the stand, did, did King personally reach out to him? Was that from hmm. his own inspiration from that kind of comic book world or that art? Hmm. I don't I don't know the story oh, okay. uh, there, uh, to be honest, but uh uh, the perfect match. The but it is. Them, I mean, so. and they'd worked together before. And I and just like you said, King is very kind of clued into that kind of EC style and Absolutely. Bernie Wrightson was, is very much at that time, the modern take on that, like, uh, like his Frankenstein art and all that. Like he was doing like kind of the modern day version of that when we didn't really have anything like that in the, the eighties. Cause the, 80s yeah. was the, the, the heyday of the, the Marvel and, uh, you know, Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, Captain America, the, 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 the tent, Tent poles, the milestones. I think that's. I, I was trying to say two words together and almost said tent pole or tent stones. Tent um, stones. Yeah. Well, yeah, it happens. Tent stones. It's, yeah. it, it's poetry. The, that's a character, actually. That's a good idea for a character. The tent stones. <laughs> the um, but group. yeah. But yeah, well, no, you're, because it, it I was, was reading like yeah. Cracked Magazine, like that. I, oh yeah. Cracked Magazine. I was more of a cracked guy. It tells you everything about me as a kid. But I, but I, <laughs> I liked the. That's where I was introduced to the work of John Severin. Right. One of my favorite uh, artists of that period. And of course, I found out later that John had been around for a long time and, you know, Don Martin. And so it was all kind of part of that. I don't know. It, but it is it, it is connected because reading a Stephen King book at that time, that era, those types of really, you know, it's like, hey, I want to tell you a story, but it's really grim and nasty. And I'm going to tell you all the details, the gory details. What do you think, kid? And I'm like, of course. Sign yeah, me why up. Not? That's what Stephen King was, you know, yeah. at that time. I like talking about the stand because it affords us the opportunity to talk about the end of the world. And I'm a morbid <laughs> motherfucker. Yes. Yes. Um, I'm curious, Josh, how you think you would fare in a truly apocalyptic 
scenario. And this is something we've talked about on the show before. And people tend to fall into one of two categories where they're like, I would just like to die right off the bat. Right. Like, I don't want to stick around and be, you know, forced to comb through the wreckage to make, you know, to survive. And then there are other people that are like, no, I would absolutely go like full Lord Humongous. And, you know, <laughs> I would I would conquer these lands. Um, where do you think you fall on that? I would die immediately. I don't know. <laughs> you know, my girlfriend and I, we we watch movies and there'll be some big action scene, big fight scene. I'll always turn to her and say, one punch, I'm out. I'm done. This guy hits me, I'm out. It's over. <laughs> or jump out of a plane. My shoot doesn't work. I fall, I'm dead. I die. It's not going to happen, you know, because, uh, you know, I'm either that or I go completely the other way and I start my own, uh, you know, religion. Yeah. You know, you're going to be like a, cult a cult leader. leader. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, you know, Hubbard style. Uh, well, you know, uh, hello, everybody. Uh, gather around and uh, why uh, I'll tell you a story. And, uh, you know, I, I could uh, I could do that. I could see myself doing that for a little bit. That could work. You it know? would be hilarious if someone relaunched Scientology after an apocalypse. Like, yeah. <laughs> traveling around with a copy of Dianetics with like a different yeah. cover on it that's like hand drawn. <laughs> it's like, this is this is your new Bible. Just read it. <laughs> yeah, because it is the end of the world. You know, this mm-hmm. is we, we the prophecy already happened. So now what do we do? Well, this <laughs> right. is the answer, folks. Where I used to Zenu? like uh, L. Ron Hubbard. I was involved in Scientology briefly because someone I was dating at the time. That's how it always happens. Uh, was involved. So I remember listening to some of his lectures and uh, he, you know, he had a very, you know, he had that sort of 1950s, that sort of way of speaking. Hello, everybody. Everybody had that kind of way of. Right. But he would say things like, uh, well, uh, a fellow walks into a laundromat uh, looking for uh, a fellow walks into a laundromat with a roll of quarters. Uh, well, that's somebody that we can work with. Uh, another fellow walks into a laundromat uh, looking for a hamburger. You know, that's somebody we can't do anything with. So uh, why, of course, that's what we do. And uh, and that, 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 you know, five hours of that. It's amazing. I love that shit. It, I, I could do it. Yeah. You know, I think that you being a cult leader in the apocalypse, especially with your talent at voicing yes, different yes. things, you could like, oh, this is the word of God now is coming. And you can literally use Morgan Freeman if you wanted to. It's like yeah, you could do, you, you know, it's like you could. uh uh, I don't know. You could bend that to some some really uh, evil ways. Like once that first initial batch of of people are you know have gone that remembers yes. the old ways. You know, That's I right. could see you be being like this seventy year old you know fucking leader of of a new new peoples that just believes that that uh, I don't know all the elder gods are speaking through you. You know, no, you're right. I'd have to lay low. <laughs> yeah, I'd have to lay low for a while, probably. For- ten- but it'd be a while. It'd be a long while. I'd have to figure out how to live on my own for about 10 years, probably a decade. <laughs> right. You know, but then I could have, and, but while that, while that decade is happening, I could be setting up, you know, traps and yes. I could tie like, like a uh, fishing wire to tree branches so that I can make them move and mm-hmm, do things mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. hello down there. It is me, <laughs> the great pine tree talking to the mighty oak. <laughs> you know, and I could be look up there, everybody. There's you. Why a fella starts talking to an oak tree, he's got an idea. He can he can expand. A fellow that can't talk to a tree, that's someone that's going to lie down and die. You see, so <laughs> here we go. Get out your workbooks, and the workbooks are all you know stone tablets. I mean, this yeah. is I, I got it sorted. Okay, I'm not going to die. I'm going to be a cult leader. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, I figured it out. 
I think that in the immediate apocalypse would be would be the time that I would thrive just yeah. in that that first like say the three or four years afterwards where I can still live off of fucking canned food, right? Once all that shit's gone and the medicine's gone and I can't just walk down the street and loot what I need to loot, I'm fucked. Yeah, like, it's over. I, I, I yeah. can't learn how to fucking farm. You know, it's like, I, I'm, I'm not, <laughs> not you know, I was like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm way too soft for the apocalypse. But like, you know, I played enough survival horror games to where it's like, oh, that immediate aftermath where you can, I know what supplies to go get. I know where to go get the gas, you know, mm-hmm. I can, I can do all that shit in the immediate uh, things, but like fucking learning, you know, how to turn the gas plant or the power plant back on. Nope. No, sir. No. That ain't going to be me. So but that's where I come in. I give you purpose. I go, listen, <laughs> you don't need to know all that stuff. Join, come join <laughs> our community up here. We're doing things. By the way, have you read my new novel, Dynasty of the Crystal Trolls? Uh, everybody get a copy in the apocalypse. It's a really good read. <laughs> what about you, Scott? What's what's your... Uh, what well, do you I think? Wanna, I've, very you know, I've said this before, but I would want to die immediately. I don't want to fuck yeah. around. Yeah. Like, I'm annoyed with... Do you? I'm so annoyed and angry with the world as it is. Right. Like... I don't want another version of it where it's, you know, demonstrably worse in every possible way. Like, no, 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 no. I don't want to, I don't want to be alive for that. So yeah, I would, I would hope to be taken out and, you know, if it's an alien invasion, let a tripod step on me immediately. Or, (laughs) you know, if it's zombies, let me get my brain eaten immediately or let the asteroid hit directly on my house. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I, I don't want to, I, I, I have no interest in living in a post-apocalyptic world. I, yeah, I that's just, a good point. Yeah, I live in Los suck. Angeles, so we're already here, and it's uh, <laughs> and it's extremely annoying to get around. And I, you know, most people, I just, I, I don't even know how you're alive. I don't know how you're getting through the day. So right. you take you take all the stuff away that's barely keeping those people together. It's mm-hmm. on. You're and done. knowing that so many people mm-hmm. have these fucking giant stashes of guns and shit you're fucked yeah. you're fucked yeah. in a situation like that well no well, the stand live the stand is there's good people on both sides there's mother <laughs> abigail there's randall flag both good people both good people you know so great it's gonna be great there'll be no tiktok in the apocalypse so that's good yeah that's it's you know metal every cloud that's true. It's silver lining um <laughs> i one thing i i do want to kind of point it out while we're talking about uh the stand is um the differences between whoopi goldberg's uh mm. mother abigail and the version oh my god i've forgotten her name ruby it's d. ruby d ruby d, d. d. yes mm-hmm. uh played in in the remake eric how do you um how do you weigh these two against one another um and I'll tell I, you why I, I'm asking, because yeah. I watched Ghost last night for the first yes. time in like 20 yeah. years. That movie <laughs> yeah, is great. fucking awesome. Yeah, and she's um, great yeah. in it. Like, total, oh, and total deserving best supporting win there. It's incredible, that fucking performance. Um, I think I, I love Whoopi. Um, I think that her mother, Abigail, um, to me, it doesn't really hold much of a candle to Ruby D's, but only because I think for just purely from nostalgia standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. because Ruby D had that kind of, I know that she was likewise buried in like old age makeup. She didn't really look like that, but right. she'd seem more authentic to me. She like, I heard the age in her voice where in the, right. uh, the new one, 
it was like whoopee with uh, silver dreads you know it's like the mm-hmm. whoopee of today i didn't really buy that she was 107 years old or however the old fucking mother yeah is. i agree I um, agree. But I think, you know, in terms of just, of course, being the person you're drawn to, I think Whoopi's inspired casting for for that. And apparently, you know, I remember in the lead up to the newsstand, she was doing interviews talking about how she loved the book and she wanted to be Mother Abigail in the, in the 90s. And they just wouldn't even consider her for it, which is crazy to me to, to think about now. I don't know how true that is or, you know, if it's. You know, it, you know, but I can also see Mick Garris going, of course, we'll turn down a big star. because She was a big star back then. Um, uh, I will turn her down because, you know, she's just not right for the part. You know, that'd be way too much, way too big of an ask where Ruby D, I think, was already in her her 50s or 60s. So it's not like, right. you know, trying Makes to make sense. somebody who's in her, her 30s look like she's 100, you know, totally. Oh, yeah, that's where I stand on that. That's where you stand on that. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Take care, everybody. <laughs> what, what else uh, do we want to talk about in relation to the stand? Uh, oh, God, there's, there's so much. Well, we talked about Mother Abigail. We should talk about the walking dude. We should talk about Randall Flagg. Sure. What the stand gave us, and you, know, you mentioned like reading the stand uh, is just such a kind of a a masterclass in, in popular writing, right? Or populist writing. And you kind of have to put it in a perspective. Like he was like banging these out at this point. So he like wrote the shining and then he wrote the stand and like, this is where he's really like King shit, right? This is where he's Stephen King is, is, uh, has figured out his thing and he's just like firing on all cylinders. And, uh, uh, and in doing so he created probably, you know, in his, you know, pantheon of iconic characters. He created one of his most iconic villains. And uh, maybe this is a good place to start. Like what, what was your impression of, of uh, Randall flag, uh, Josh? Like, do you remember like just being like really uh, kind of taken with the character or drawn in by him or, or like, or thinking he was just disgusting? Like what, what was your reaction to, to Randall flag? You know, I don't, I, I was, it was a very, this is an interesting question because I think, I think around that time or somewhere around the time I was reading The Stand, I had also found a copy of uh, Robert McCammon's uh, Swan Song. Hmm. And sometimes I would get Randall Flagg confused with the the main villain from Swan Song. Um, I found, I found, I I found Randall Flagg to be very, um, uh, frightening, but in a, in a, in a kind of a mannered way. I I didn't, he wasn't, he wasn't like to me, a a, a supremely evil, he was a bad guy, but I don't think, whereas the, the villain in McCammon's was just a nasty, vile human being. And, um... So I don't remember feeling particularly terrified by him. Right. Um, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm sort of re- trying to remember those things as well because it's been a while. But yeah. um, I do remember the <laughs> the TV movie version. <laughs> with his mullet. Uh, yeah. yeah, with the mullet and the horns. Was there some... Maybe CG work in there, some computer effects. Some like probably, uh, probably around that time. Sure, some like yes. early. Uh, or what was the that morphing? Morphing, morphing yeah. technology. Oh, right? I remember the morphing. Yeah, good stuff. You know. <laughs> so I think what started to happen around that time was something that we had, ne- at least I had never experienced before, where you now had 
different versions of these stories. Whereas back in the day, you just read the book and that was it. And maybe the movie came out, but now right. it was like in popular culture. So you sort of vaguely remember the commercial, you remember the actor who played him. And then you started putting that on the actual page when you were reading it. Now you're thinking about, you know, Rob Lowe as Nick Andros and, you know, so yeah, it's sort of all in the ether. And then I even started mixing in Swan Song, which I always felt was Similar to the stand, I mean, it came out later, like in '87, but that was about nuclear war that decimated everybody. Do you guys ever read that book, by the way? No, did not. Yeah, that's a real nasty book. I like Robert McCammon a lot, but yeah, it feels like he went, "Oh yeah, the stand." Yeah, let me try that out. I tried to read read one of his books that that I think Darebot like told me back and he's like, "Oh, you need to read this. I'm going to try to adapt it." And I was like, "Oh, I'm going to read it." And I remember getting about like three or four chapters in and of course Darabont never adapted it or anything but I got three or four chapters in I'm like this is just mean and I don't like it it makes me feel weird it's very mean reading this yeah it's mean was it, kinda... was it Night Boat it was probably Night Boat no was, was it something Hour of the Wolf or the Wolf Prey hour. something about Prey maybe I don't know oh, I, don't, yeah. I don't remember yeah I I, I bounced right off of it, but I'm also, I'm I'm not a really well-read person. Like I just, it takes a lot to really suck me into a, uh, uh, a fictional world and, uh, and Stephen King for whatever reason, how, how he writes is, is like, uh, I judge all the other writers by it. So if if I don't, if I don't get uh, pulled into the, uh, whatever the next story is, it's like, it's real difficult for me to give somebody new a chance. Um, so what were and your impre- yeah? What were your impressions then of as I'm trying to piece together Randall oh. Flag in my mind? I mean, what were you? Well, Scott, do you want to weigh in? I feel like I've been talking a lot, but uh... um, I well, I by that point I had read Eyes of the Dragon, and right. Flags and Eyes oh, of the Dragon. Okay, That's and right. so I I knew he was you know a very bad dude, but I I think to to what you were saying, Josh, that. Um, my ideal version of flag has, and I think the books that he appears in have, uh, him taking on sort of a, like a, a Loki kind of vibe, you know, he's a, he's a trickster and he likes, he likes mischief and, you know, he'll, he'll do bad things just to see what happens, you know? Um, and I think that, I don't know. I I think that works really well for his character because you've got to believe that people would follow flag. Right. You know, if he was just all the, all the time, if he was like some terrible monster, who was just ripping people limb from limb, but at the same time being like, and come to Las Vegas with me, you wouldn't fucking do that. You know, Um, he's got to be charming. He's got to be, you know, a little funny. Uh, I think he's a, a perfectly realized villain. Yeah. But I no, wasn't that, terribly surprised by um, him in the stand because, you know, because of Eyes of the Dragon. I, right. Yeah. And I, I must have read this before I read Wastelands because I remember having that that kind of crazy epiphany whenever he like enters frame, you know, at the end of the Wastelands. You're like, oh, my mm-hmm. fucking God. Right. Randall flags in the Dark Tower. And then there's this whole thing where maybe he's kind of the man in black, too. And maybe he's always been there and and all this shit. I All that stuff still super unclear to me. We've we've asked like hardcore experts about this and, and I still don't am no no uh, closer to figuring out if uh, 
Randall Flagg in the Dark Tower is the same person as the Man in Black is the same person as Walter. Well, it doesn't matter, man. It doesn't matter because Stephen King he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't write down the plot, man. He just (laughs) starts going, man. He just goes, oh wait a second, what if I put this guy here because I'm feeling it, and then next thing you know he's in another book, and you go, well, I guess that's what happened. But I don't write the stories (laughs) out. I'm not planning this shit out, man. That's exactly right. That's how it works. But one thing that I really love about Randall Flagg, especially in The Stand, is how he, you know, he slowly loses his mystique, right? Where at the beginning, it's just this dude walking along the highway as, uh, you know, as Captain Trips is unleashed, right? It's like he's, you get these little glimpses. It's the button of the smiley face button, the denim jacket, the cowboy boots on the ground, this persona, this mysterious guy. Is is he all powerful? You don't know. But like, as you, as he gains power, uh, the more power he gains, the more he's revealed to not really have any power. Right. He like he's he's always he's projecting what he has and he the power he has is is what he's been able to essentially con out of his flock and the support he gets out of his flock. And it's Mm -hmm. such a you know, it's such a great moment, you know, because there's even the thing. And I think we talk we've talked about it on a previous episode, but I remember like there's that great moment where the. Uh, the the people from Boulder are tasked to go to Vegas and they come face to face with him and they just kind of go, this is it. Like we built you up up for this whole thing and this is all you are. You're just the showman, you know, here putting, putting on the show. It's like, this is like, we were afraid of this, you know, like, I don't know. There's something about that. I fucking love. And I love how that, that really like gets under his skin too. You can tell that like he's revealed in that moment. So Oh, it sort of sounds like uh, somebody else that I know, uh, very familiar, uh, (laughs) uh, why a fella's walking down the road uh, wearing all denim, and uh, of course, next thing you know, the cornfields are on fire, so uh, (laughs) it is kind of, it does feel like that, you know, that whole idea of uh, a a guy, you know, for example, an L. Ron Hubbard guy who was just a, you know, not a a great, uh, you know, pulp fiction writer down on his luck, (laughs) and uh you know, he, you know, he's very revered and a very fascinating guy, bigger than life. But then the stories that are told about him become this sort of, you know, Paul Bunyan-esque, you know, right. tales. <laughs> and so the idea of some dude, you know, in the post-apocalypse kind of turning that to his favor is beautiful. Yeah. Walking down the road with that smile. Yeah, that's that's a very indelible image. That's a great image from the book, man. Right. Yeah. Well- and you know, and obviously, given him his credit, like he he is supernatural. He does he is, right. He can do some fucked up things. He is cruel and he is mean. He crucifies junkies and shit. It's like you know, he's he's not like uh you know, not powerful. But like, I do love that whole conceit of his power is is really just through his influence, and that's what kind of makes the coda at the end of the extended edition so fascinating because you know the coda if anybody you know hasn't read the the newer version is you know that he kind of re reemerges he he's resurrected uh, on an island right and uh and he finds a bunch of natives who start to bow down to him and it's just like be, you know he like he'll, he electrocutes somebody or some shit he does something supernatural and and they start bowing down to him and like and it ends with him smiling and he's got a a new a new flock, which means he's getting new powers, right? He's, he's becoming more powerful. And by the way, that's that's incredibly realized, again, in, in Bernie Wrightson's art yep. at the very end of the book. Yeah, yeah we still got um, the crow feathers in his hair and shit. Yes. Yeah. That's a very, very beautiful piece of art. Um, yeah. 
So yeah, no, fascinating character. Definitely top tier king bad guy. Um, what do you make of the ending ending? You know, I know that the, the ending gets criticized uh, a lot as being a deus ex machina where it's the literal, literal hand of literal hand of gods <laughs> coming out of the out of the sky to explode uh the bomb that poor trash can man, you know, brings to to Randall Flag. <laughs> um uh, but what do you what do you make of that? Do you is that something that bothered you? Did that feel like a cop out to you when you uh, read it or when you, re- you watch like the miniseries or the new version? I think it's hard for me to say. I think I saw it in the miniseries. So, right. You know, it's that thing of somebody else realizing visually for you what it's mm. supposed to look like. Right, right. As opposed to me doing it myself, which really is the whole point, I think. But. I, I feel like it fits at home, though. I think I once you've I think once you've gotten to the point, once you've gotten to that point in the novel, if you read the whole thing, I I feel like it just organically fits in with the right. whole story. I, I don't I don't know that it would have been a great shock to me. I don't know what 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 were your impressions of that when you got to that point. I, I mean, I agree too because I mean, looking at it now, it's it, the stand is almost like a Bible story, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's like a Bible-sized Bible story. It, it's something that would be like, you know, two two paragraphs or something in in the Old Testament, but it's essentially a, a Bible story, you know. So it it being a, a story about good and evil and God versus the devil and whatnot, you know, I think it's a pretty fitting ending. Like I don't have a problem with it, but yeah. I also don't have a problem with the losers, you know, fighting a giant <clears throat> spider. So it's uh, <laughs> right. you know, which right. a lot of people do. So. I, I've never had those same hangups when it came comes to King's endings, usually that a lot of readers do. I can't imagine the type of person that's like just not on board with the hand of God thing, you know, right. and and I would typically be that person. Um, But I think that I think Josh is right. I think it earns <clears throat> the 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 ending is not only earned, but um, it does feel of a piece with everything else in it in a way that's you've already got mysticism in the book, you know, right. if it were yeah. entirely realistic and it was just like a lady who was really nice and a guy who was really mean and they were like building up armies. Um, and then a hand of God came out. I'd be like, right. I'd call bullshit, but you know, there's already like plenty of plenty of mysticism going on in this, in this story. So like on the surface of it, I think it's a little bit of a cop out, but on the other hand, um, the much greater hand, the hand of God, if you will. Uh, it's, it's fitting. And, you know, um, I think that we have yet to see it realized on screen in a way that doesn't look completely janky. <laughs> right. Totally. I think there was a, I'm a big nine inch nails fan. Yes. One of my favorite. No, Scott bands hates in... nine inch nails. Don't bring no. those guys no. up. Oh, oh, I'm a no. huge, huge yeah. nine inch nails nerd. No, I <laughs> yeah. love, I love, um, especially the, you know, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross together and all that music that's come out of that partnership. But, but the cover, this ties into what we're talking about. The cover of the album year zero Mm -hmm. has a hand uh, out of focus coming out of the sky. It's the point of view through, um, I think it's the front seat of a car. It's right. Yeah. Well, the, the hand, oh man, I I can tell you everything you want to know about this. I'm like <laughs> deep nerd on that shit. Yeah, because this was the concept thing. Yeah, when it, right. the concept album, right? Right. So right. what? So it is a it's a presence. It's a yeah. It is visually there's some a, sort of godhead. You that's know? right. And so initially yeah. interpreted as like alien. 
Right. I think, and I think visually, the way that that's represented is close, closest to what I visualize with the ending of the stand. It's it's like you you can't see it clearly. It's sort of the idea of or the feeling of it without overtly being that thing completely. You know, I mean, because mm-hmm. in the book, in the book, is it. Is it in, can it be interpreted any other way, or it is definitely a hand that comes out of the sky? It's not I, like a physical hand, right? right it's right. like a hand of light. I think is how okay. it was described. Is that's right. what my memory is any anyway? Yeah. So you could take that, however. But anyway, yeah, I think that's the problem is trying to visualize that. I mean, certainly in the uh, uh, did did they do it in the new version? Did you guys watch the full series? <laughs> I did. I mem- my memory's fuzzy on it. I think it was oh, okay. electricity, wasn't it? Wasn't it, Scott? It would look kind of like an electric hand or a lightning bolt hand or something. Yeah, kind of. Still a hand, though. Yeah. Like, yeah. vaguely, you know, hand-shaped where it didn't... It could be open to interpretation, where I think the McGarris one is just way more obvious of, like, it's it has everything but the choir music, you know. It sure oh, does. You know, as it's, as it's happening, and everybody's knowing what's going on and realizing it. Um. Yeah, but, you know, I, I'd much rather them do that, to be honest, because, you know, again, it's it's a it's a biblical story. It's yes. a, a woman of God versus, you know, a, maybe the devil or a servant of the devil. And, you know, it's like you're, if you're bought in for that, as Scott said, at that up to that point, then you should be bought in for. Right. You know, essentially God, you know, and the devil's chess game is his come to a conclusion and God wins. And this is how we you know, this is him essentially knocking over the you know, the opponent's uh, queen, you know? And so it's like, I, I totally get, get using that, that, uh, that imagery. Yeah, yeah it for reminds sure. me, but there's another movie. Um, oh, what is it? Benji uh, the hunted. Is that it? Yeah. Is that the one? That's the, also the movie God, I was thinking of. Benji the hunted. Milo and Otis. <laughs> what was it? Um, um, ah, oh, it was with, uh, was it, it's an Italian film. It's about a girl who has telekinetic powers a ripoff oh. of Close Encounters and The Exorcist. It's got John Houston and uh, Lance Henriksen. Oh, come Jesus. on. It's wild. And and Franco Nero plays uh, Space Jesus. <laughs> oh, wait I don't second. know this, but I love it come already. On. you got to see this movie. Where, Who directed it? Oh, I, I want to say it was Oviedo Asanitas. You know that that guy. He did like um, Amityville Two, The Possession. What the hell was this movie? Somebody's screaming right now at their at their device listening device. The Visitor, Jesus Christ, The, the Visitor, visitor. The Visitor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So The Visitor is that that kind of film where um, you know you've got God and the devil sort of fighting one another. Right. And uh, yeah, but obviously the stand does it much better. But I would like to see an Italian. I would like to see a version of the stand done in the style of the visitor. I would like to see a 70s style Italian filmed version of the stand in four parts. This, Thank you. This movie came out in 1979 as well, which is when yes. I think the stand was published. What the fuck was going on back then? Like they really needed God and the devil to be fighting each other, apparently, and in their fiction. Yeah. Well, yeah. And knowing, knowing Ovidio, Ovidio, he, Ovidio, he was probably like, you know what? I already stand. 
Great idea. Put it in there. We got close encounters, <laughs> exorcist. We have birds flying around. Let's do it. And Shelly Winters. Get Shelly. They always got Shelly Winters, <laughs> yep. John Houston, and Peter Fonda every time. And they, he was like good friends with them. Uh, two of them needed to, you know, pay off the alimony. So, I mean, this is true. And so they would call him in and work half a day. And John Houston would say, you know, her name is Katie Collins, and she has superpowers. You can find her on the fourth floor of the Sears Tower. Okay, cut. Great. All right. Get me out of here. You know, and that was it. And then now you could put John Houston on the poster. But uh, yeah, man, there was something going on. Something in the ether again in the late 70s. I don't know what it was. Nah, just blame it on Vietnam. Usually all the <laughs> yeah, it's stuff all from Vietnam. that era that's bad is you can trace it back to Vietnam. Something. Vietnam or cocaine. That's yeah. Either one. <laughs> yeah. Now, what, now, I was going to ask that Stephen King. Now, this book, The Stand, uh, his first his first big bestseller was uh, a Carrie, right? That's the big one. Mm-hmm. It, his first that was an actual bestseller, I think, was The Shining. Uh, Carrie, Carrie well, did well, but it wasn't. Uh, OK, so it, that was it, the one. It, he... it was like a huge yeah. success on paperback versus hardcover. So for him personally, though, that was like the big, that was like the first success, I guess. I I believe so, yes. So how many novels along then is uh, The Stand, like from Carrie? It's not many. I mean, I think Night Shift came out before this. Uh, So I think it was Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, Night Shift, The Stand is my, it's somewhere in there. And I think Night Shift is probably just because he wanted to have a book out and he was spent so much time writing this huge uh, undertaking, this epic that he was doing. Right. And so he's like, I'll just pull all the, uh, the, all the short stories I submitted to Titty Mags and we'll put it in one collection. That's right. Right. You know, that's amazing. That makes it even more stunning. That's incredible, so, man. My timeline might not be 100% accurate there, but uh, but I believe it. And, it. and since I believe it enough, uh, it's well, that's real. All that that's matters. How, how, how it matters. So. Yeah, I agree with you. That's, that's how I feel. <laughs> I think this is the films. book that he'll be remembered for. Hmm. You know, I've, I've also said this on the show, but, you know, he. I think more than anything, the, the stand uh, comes closest to being like the great American novel. You know, yeah. it's it's certainly in the running. Um, and I think it's, it's the one that they'll, that he'll most be remembered for it being the other possibility, but Hmm. it'll be one of those two. Right. It's definitely one I could see being, you know, taught in colleges or something, you know, analyzed in creative writing, advanced creative writing courses and stuff, um, just because of the breadth of the characters, you know, it's, it's as close as we really got to like an American Lord of the Rings, right? So it's it's this sprawling, you know, and maybe I'm just saying that because people walk a lot in, in, in both books, but, uh, you know, it's a sprawling epic. It has its own mythology. It doesn't quite, you know, play with language the same way that Tolkien does, but it's like, you know, it, it has those still, you know, like iconic, fully flesh out characters that resonate with each generation that picks it up. So, so not so. Tommyknockers. Okay. <laughs> Tommyknockers yes. a close third behind. I mean, yeah. yeah. Bad Headache, Jimmy Smith's yep. nothing. That was a two hour Golden Years. Can we throw Golden Years in there? Was that a Golden thing? Golden Years, the miniseries? Yes. Man, was I've been a- wanting to go back and revisit that one. I haven't seen it in maybe since it aired. Um, hey, you know, you guys are talking about old age makeup and mother abigail yeah. you want to talk about some old age makeup yeah. go ahead and I'm take a look at golden it's years just absolutely not going to stand up at all and I, I the thing is i don't remember it being that great to begin with like 
I remember you, watching you're it not as nostalgic a kid. For it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no. Um, yeah, that was like swept under the. I remember being on. I remember seeing it on the old tube TV in the living room. I remember it sort of being there, but nobody really talked about it. And it then was it, supposed and then, to be a series, right? Like not a mini yes, series. Yes, yes. And then I remember when I worked at Blockbuster Video years later. You know, you could rent the. Uh, <laughs> they always have a rubber band that would tie together the two VHS right. tapes. It would always be the big double yep. tape. Or the stand. Someone would, I would like to rent the stand, please. All right, it's only a two night rental. Well, <laughs> you know what I'll be doing for two days straight. Wow, good luck with that. <laughs> Not yeah, feeding you're gonna count out the money already. <laughs> yeah. Another sucker born every minute, and then I transform <laughs> into Randall Flag. <laughs> well, this is usually the point in the show where we invite our guests to. Tell us what they're working on, where they can be found, uh, anything in particular you'd like to promote. Uh, this is self-promo corner time, Josh. And well, ev- you know, everything I've done up until this point has been canceled because of the writer's strike. <laughs> yes. So uh, this currently what you're listening to right now is what I am doing. <laughs> yes. um, no, I will say uh, without saying too much. Um, I am getting back to my first love of writing. So I am writing a book and um, preparing to make a short film um, because, as we talked about earlier, I started out making movies and writing really bad uh, fantasy stories. Um, But that's my first love. I fell into the voice stuff. I fell into it, and it's enjoyable, but... um, I, I'm now getting back to the other thing. And maybe, I don't know, maybe this strike has been a good thing. It's it's not a good thing, uh, of course, for for everybody, for the, the writers especially. But um, it sort of made me take a look at, you know, where I'm heading in my career. And so I, sure. I, I don't know. I'm really enjoying it. I'm really enjoying it. And as I said, I did finish reading on writing. Um, and it's just a, an unbelievably great book. It just really yeah. spoke to me. It's incredibly well it motivated you it really did invaluable in that sense so that's kind of where i'm at you know and and i'm enjoying it a lot i love it and um and of course you know watching a lot of uh uh italian uh cannibal uh horror films (laughs) also rest in peace to um giovanni uh uh, radici is that his name john aka john morgan who was in a lot of these films um Cannibal Ferox, one of my favorite performances by him uh, as as uh, Naughty Mike, a man who um, gets his uh, his genitals cut off and deservedly <laughs> so. He's a bad guy. But, I never uh, saw that one. Yeah, it's uh, it's tough. It's yeah. tough. they try to shoehorn a <laughs> and then a little uh, cultural and environmental lesson in at the end. Um, but boy, it's a tough one. Uh, but yeah, rest in peace, John Morgan. And I, I would like to add, uh, if you're a fan of Shelbyville, there might be a little uh, Chud Buggins in your your future in season two. All right, man. I'm looking never forward know. to it, man. You never know. Hey, you never know where I'm going to turn up, man. That's very you know true. That's right. Yeah, it could be. Could it's be the, the Chud Abides. Yes. Yeah. That's well, right, man. Well, thank you very much for being here today. This was awesome. And uh, of course, we got nowhere near... Uh, <laughs> Covering the stand in its entirety. We will never accomplish that in a single episode. But 
We thank you for giving it a, a the good old college try, Josh. Hey, I appreciate you having me on. It's my pleasure. Also, shout out to uh, Bangor, Maine's own Danny Cashman, host of the longest running local late night show, Night Talk. And oh. I was in uh, Bangor maybe a few weeks after you guys were there. Ooh, we Ooh. warmed it up for you. I was yes, there, and I was a guest on Danny Cashman's show. So I feel like next time you guys are there, you got to go on Night Talk. He's been doing this show for, I think, over over twenty years now, and he even drove me past uh, past the King Manor. So I fell Ooh. in love with Maine. I I may want to move there. So please help me with Same. that. Dude, I'm telling you, we, it is unbelievable. It's gorgeous, right? It's it spoke just, to my heart. I couldn't yeah. leave. I was like, I, I don't want to leave now. I have to be here forever. Yeah, so maybe I'll go back and I'll some about New England is just calling me. I. Uh, I'd love to move out there. I'm not in a position where I can just pick up and move out there right now, but right. Um, in a few years, like, like long term, I would really love to, to end up up there. Um, yeah. And, absolutely, uh, man. yeah. And we, we may actually be going back to Maine this year for another, another round of hijinks. So, well, um, let me know, man. I love to, you know, listen, it's sometimes, yeah. you know, Chet Buggins might show up, man. You never yeah. know. We can, we'll, so, we'll, know we'll, we'll coordinate off mic. We'll coordinate some. All right. Some all right. Stuff. I'm just, yeah. I'm just, uh, you know, anyway, shout out to Danny Cashman. Great guy. Great show. Good people. Love Maine deeply. So thank right you on. very much. Many thanks to Josh Robert Thompson and Morgan Freeman and George Lucas and L. Ron Hubbard for some reason. We love Josh around these parts, and I think he did a bang-up job with the episode. Very entertaining. And, you know, I just also just love when you bring Josh on, you're bringing you know, another half dozen guests with him. He just can't help b- throw in Matthew McConaughey for, for five minutes, you know? Yes. Gotta love it. Um, love Josh. Very excited to have him as a fixture on this show. Um, he's He's been around a, a number of times. He is Morgan Freeman on our uh, previous two anniversary specials. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We we owe the people another anniversary special. Do yeah. you remember that? Yeah, I, fucking, I do remember We gotta that. plan and execute that. We we do. I actually remember, was doing a little work on that. You remember when, like, a year ago, and I was like, we shouldn't do this again. <laughs> it's going to be too much of a problem. And you were like, no, we got to do it. And uh-huh. now we got to do it again. Yeah. Do you have any feelings about that? Do you have uh, any, I'm excited, actually. Do you? Do you <laughs> I'm excited about it. Because because nothing that we do <laughs> throughout the entire... schedule it, then. <laughs> nothing that we do throughout the entire year stresses out Scott more than these anniversary <laughs> shows. No, it's a fucking disaster. Every goddamn time, we, we, he could uh, go up we, and get publicly castrated, and he'd be—he'd have more or less less like anxiety about that than trying to put together one of these anniversary shows. I've been but hitting he, the balls before. I know what that feels like. It's—you <laughs> know—you get that over with and done. It's fine. Uh, these things are a logistical nightmare. Um, but uh, Josh has been around for for a while now. He's yeah. he's showed up on on our last two anniversary specials. He showed up on Shelbyville, yeah, um, as as Chuck Buggins by way of Matthew McConaughey. Delighted to have him in a main feed episode. Uh, love Josh, uh, and and hope everyone will seek him out and follow him and keep track of. I don't know all the things he's doing. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm trailing off. Yes, I, I, I don't know what to say. Well, it's vacation yes. mode, Scott, and we need to get yes. vacation mode, Scott, back on vacation. So before we go, though, we have to tell everybody that next week in the main feed we are going to be dropping one of our live shows. So we are dropping our 
live show that we did was Stephen Graham Jones at the Highball. This is the first time it has mm-hmm. been available outside of our Patreon. It is a banger of an episode that we did after we screened Maximum Overdrive. And, uh, I, you know, Stephen Graham Jones is a favorite amongst the listeners. He's one of our favorite people to talk to. It's about yes. damn time the overall listener base can hear this really fun chat that we had with him as he was pimping out copies of his uh, then new book, Don't Fear the Reaper. And, Absolutely. Uh, uh, always, really always an exciting time when we have <laughs> old SG, SG, SGJ, 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 Sarah SGJ. Michelle Geller. Yes. When we, yeah, Sarah when Michelle we have Geller on the show. Sarah, we have Sarah Jessica Parker on the show. <laughs> it's it's always very exciting. I can't do acronyms right now, but yes, it's a it's a a great chat. I th- I think people are going to be very excited by it. Um, and then on the Patreon yeah. this Friday, Vespi and I are talking about how we spent our summer vacations. Vespi's down in New Zealand, fucking around down there. He's I talking am. to Peter Jackson. He's 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 visiting. Um, hobbit places or whatever the fuck you do yep. in, in new zealand plus uh you know an indian restaurant i'm i'm back down here in austin seeing some people we're talking about <sighs> what we've been doing the last few months mm-hmm. we didn't have a summer vacation we but bo- we both had like a, a concentrated dose of freedom <laughs> yeah and and are packing things into that so it it sounds weird to try to picture it as a, a summer vacation right thing, it's not but. like we're at a summer camp or anything but you know there we had a few right. overlaps like we both saw the new indiana jones so we talked yeah. about that it's one of those yes. kind of bonus episodes where we're like t- telling everybody where what we've been up to what we've been watching what we, we've been reading what we've been playing that kind of thing and and uh yeah it was more of a kind of a catch-up between us since we've uh went since got so far away in in indiana even even uh uh now that i'm in new zealand it feels even farther. So, you know, kind of catching up. Bitch, and... I'm not even in Indiana. I'm in, I'm in Idaho. Oh. Oh. Well, I said the wrong I state. Oh. Oh, now who's in vacation Really upset. Mode? Now this, this whole fucking episode is trash. It, oh, yeah. Know, we got to burn it. We got to burn it. I made a mistake. It. I made yeah, a mistake. Yeah, yeah. Look, folks, we're, uh, we're a little giddy. Um, <laughs> we're both off on our own adventures right now. But uh, next week... You're going to get Stephen Graham Jones in the main feed this Friday. You're going to get uh, a report on what Vespi and I have been doing on our summer vacations. It's been we've we've both been having a lot of fun. We can't wait to tell you about it. And uh, I think that's that's probably it. Right. That is that is it. And uh, we should get ne- out of here before we embarrass ourselves any further. <laughs> yes, I, th- that is a good call. It is time to leave and get back into vacation mode. I hope you have a great rest of your vacation, Scott. And for all you the- too, sir. Thank you. And for all the uh, the listeners, we'll see you in the main feed next week for Stephen Graham Jones talking Maximum Overdrive and uh, on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Kingcast. Uh, you can catch up with uh, everything we've been up to the last few weeks. See you in hell, folks. <laughs> Bye. The Kingcast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly.